I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. We love to watch. On a mountain of skulls and a castle of pain, I sat on a throne of blood. What once will be, what is, will be no more. Now is the season of evil. Likes the truth, and you know you can trust us. So don't get nervous, cause that's your service to local Ghostbusters! Hey, Aaron, how you doing? <laughs> hey, Peter. That's good. I like that intro. I did you that use that a lot. <laughs> I remember we had a contest on our website once and like you announced it using that quote and that's fine because not only did you like it a lot, uh, Comedy Central liked it a lot because I remember this movie is ingrained in my head as something like Comedy Central clearly had the rights for this but not Ghostbusters and they would play it all the time in like the late 90s, early 2000s and every every promo for it uh, – Feature that now is the season of evil. And then it was followed always by the Pete uh, Vankman line when he's hosting the the talk show that just says bummer. But it, that's also chopping up one of the best lines in the movie, which is uh, well, the two best lines. One of the best lines. So there's so many good lines in this movie. Yes. The, the best line in the movie is the, is, is, uh, at the beginning of the movie when <laughs> she predicts the end of the world. And, uh, she goes, I predict the end of the world will be on February 14th, 2016. And then he just turns to the camera and goes, Valentine's Day. <laughs> Bummer. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, a lot of my notes are quotes I can't wait to talk about. As you can tell, we're excited about this one because uh, this is our last week of our nostalgia audit uh, March that we're doing. We're also doing a lot of pre-recording. So this is going to be real nostalgia when we listen to this in a couple of months, Peter, and go, oh, we were so tired and drunk. Uh, <laughs> and But uh, we're doing that because I am having a, a child. My wife is more uh, for all you scientists out there. Um, and uh, and I'm, I'm taking a little break. But we want to make sure we give you these half-hearted, rushed episodes <laughs> to tide you over. We'd uh, love so nothing more. <laughs> we'd love nothing more to, to really give – what what do you think we give like fifty percent normally? Give mm, give like twenty twenty five percent because we have long days. We record these after work from our jobs. Then we go home and we see our families. And then we're like, all right, booze. Let's <laughs> let's be really tired at work tomorrow so I can talk about fucking Silent Night, Deadly Night. Um, but anyways, uh, but we're really excited because Peter and I are both very big fans of Ghostbusters two. That's gonna wrap up this month. On our podcast, which, guess what, bozos? We do months. Deal with it. Aaron, are we sure that our brand is calling our listeners bozos? How about telling them to deal with it? Is that our brand? Yeah, yeah. We're uh, sassy 90s teens. Okay. Listen, definitely not bozos. <laughs> deal with it. Are your arms crossed right now? No, they're on my hips, though. Is that... That's pretty good, though, too. Oh, okay. That's way sassier. Deal with it, Peter. <laughs> That's way sassier. <laughs> Are, is not your t-shirt tucked into your uh, your jeans? Uh, well, I'm wearing a sweatshirt and pajama pants, as is my standard uniform for these recording as sessions. As is your after, wand. As, yeah. Well, actually, when I get home from work, if we're not doing anything else, my pajamas go on almost immediately. I don't know why people are don't just leave a pair of sweatpants by the front yeah. door. Who wants to lounge in your house wearing jeans? 
I used to make fun of my dad for um, having uh, house slippers, like slippers that he only wears in the house and that like they keep his they're not like fancy rich people like furry things. They're literally just like you just put your fucking feet in there and you walk around. And I was like, used to make fun of him. And now that I'm older, I'm like, yeah, my my feet get cold when I'm walking around. <laughs> you know, comfort. I'd like to find out that that was actually because uh, you, Peter, were a huge fan of Home Alone and were constantly laying traps around the house. And he just started wearing slippers to kind of protect his feet from your tack attacks. <laughs> um, I'm going to break with the Internet right here um, and say okay. something pretty crazy. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of um, places you could go because the fucking... Internet believes both things of any side very strongly. <laughs> uh, fucking man up. Stepping on Legos does not hurt that much. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> it's, oh, it's man. Like a I'm going to lay some shit down plastic. for you when you come and visit. It hurts. <laughs> Although I, I stepped, stepped on, on I a stepped screw on today. Thousands of Legos. Maybe I just have like a Lego, sh- a Lego film on the bottom of my feet from years of abuse. We should tell people that you no longer have functioning legs. Oh, that's true. That's true. My nubbies yeah. do not feel... Oh, oh, they got amputated. I just thought maybe there was a nerve <laughs> severing, but uh, uh, I was thinking, yeah. Christopher Reeve, you thought Civil War. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's because I stepped on too many Legos. Too many Legos. Uh, and now, man up, I can step on them all I want because yeah. I don't have feeling. Uh, yeah, we're doing Ghostbusters 2. We're very excited about it again. Uh, it's a it's a very uh, brief we did this for two weeks ago now, because surprise, last week was actually Monster Trucks, not Ghostbusters 2. Uh, but we did this uh, two weeks ago. We did No Seckies, and we're doing it again just this one week. <laughs> no No Seckies, because we are recording this back-to-back with the last episode that we recorded, Maverick. Uh, so if we seem really put together and on track in this one and sound pretty loopy, tired, and a little buzzed, guess what? Because we stopped for a pee break and went right into it. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. Um, no. we, we set a number of drinks per hour, and yep. I'm not slowing it down just because we're doing two sessions in a row. Look, Peter, we're recording two episodes tonight. That means double the amount of drinks I normally drink on a weeknight. Yeah. I just want you to be hungover on a Monday. It's a great way to start the start so, the week. Oh, it's great, too, especially because um, um, actually first thing tomorrow morning is a baby checkup. So nice. it's gonna be, it's gonna be good when they tell me how many centimeters my wife is dilated. Mm-hmm. Why? While I smell like uh, rum. <laughs> if they ask any and questions, they'll just be like, it's get, I'll, I'll just be like, it's getting so close. It's getting so close. I don't know. Like, I'll <laughs> shake a little. Uh, but anyways, uh, yeah. So we're gonna get right into it. But again, we need to stress this. If you write one fucking letter that says you're happy with the no seggies direction of this show. More seggies. We will bring down the seggies in ways that you never. We're not just going to be yes anding. It's going to be yes and, yes and, and, and. It's never going to stop. We're going to stacked games. And you're going to have to enter in a special code, which was given out in each part of the game to access the rest of the episode. Yeah, we're going to start keeping score. We've had a good constant growth uh, rate of listeners. We really want to see if we can find a peak to... That's really that's really been our trajectory, which is like, oh, gaining a lot of listeners. How about we do musicals that neither of us like? Great idea, Peter. <laughs> Let's both do that and lose some <laughs> listeners for a while. So, yeah, this is our new tr- attempt 
to really take back some of the gains we've made over some very popular months. But now, I swear to God, if you say anything about Seggies, we'll burn this to the ground. <laughs> Anyways, do you want to talk about Ghostbusters 2? I would love nothing more than to talk about Ghostbusters 2. Sleeping in your bed. Let me tell you something. makes me feel good. talking a little bit about the music uh i love all the music in this movie so much that includes the bobby brown song so everyone who has some criticisms about that can shut it down and shut it up and i love the rn uh the rn the run dmc remix of the ghostbusters theme yeah it is fun to have like uh some new tunes in there that like feel just as early 90s and late 80s as yeah. The, the original movie is. It's, it's, they it's, feel almost as much Huey Lewis, I want a new drug, but not quite. Yeah, it's charmingly antiquated, I think. It's, it speaks to an era. I'm not saying I want to like listen to this shit like, all the time on my own. Like There's there's a reason why Ray Parker Jr. Uh, got sued by Huey Lewis and the She's <laughs> <laughs> why I listened to approximately one Ray Parker Jr. song, and it was featured in the first film. Uh, so, before we do alternate taglines and quick recap a couple things that's very important to set up here one this movie no one wanted to make at all it was a success uh the first one was in 1984 people loved it it was one of the top grossing movies of all time it was like uh, and it's it's i'll say it right off the bat it is my favorite movie of all time we're gonna avoid talking about the first one because i guarantee at some point we will do it on the show so we're just gonna talk about this but essentially no one wanted to make this in 1989 and eventually um there was such a demand for it and so much money that they got together and wrote it and as such it has a reputation as something that no one was interested in and it, it showed on screen, which is so funny to think now because even Dan Aykroyd wasn't interested in making in 1989 because Dan Aykroyd then spent the next 20 years only talking about making a third one. So that's some groundwork. And then the other thing that you should know is that Peter and I both love this movie and we're here to take back this movie from every other movie podcast that covers it just shitting on it the whole time it's yeah. fine if you don't like this movie but i'm so sick i've heard like two different podcasts this is part, part of the reason i stopped listening to certain bad movie podcasts that just kind of like started it with like i know you liked it as a kid but trust me it's shitty like it's not as good as the original it definitely has some stuff in the middle that they don't know what to do with but like, it's still very funny. It's got great special effects. It's action-heavy. It's not too long. Like, it's fine if you don't like this movie, but this idea that it's, like, this just piece of garbage that everyone is uh, hypnotized on, uh, no. And that's so – very clear where Peter and I are coming from. That held up on this rewatch. Like, I watching it with a critical eye to talk about on the show, I definitely noticed that the – middle romance between data and peter didn't like didn't work as well as their kind of like antagonism in the first movie and that kind of like dragged down the middle 
But the the first 30 minutes is great, and then the ending and all that stuff is really good. People are judging it against the standards of the first, which is an impossible standard to meet. And uh, I think the uh, go, the Lady Ghostbusters, Ghostbusterinos, number three, uh, they are uh, – it's a, a better movie than this in terms yeah. of like uh, – plotting and how it's structured and like the character development feeling natural and um setting up jokes and paying them off later all that stuff feels better in the third one but people still gave it shit for not being like as seminal as the first movie which is an impossible yes again yet again an impossible standard to meet up to I, i think you need to compare it to every other comedy of the 90s every other comedy of the 80s and it will stand up rather well like a lot of these these movies do not a lot of these these 80s comedies 90s comedies are very sweaty like even caddyshack and christmas vacation like these post snl movies um are uh really sweaty and have the same plot problems that that this movie has and yet you still watch them because they're hilarious and i think you also need to look at this from the perspective of it is a sequel and 80s comedy sequels for the most part, besides maybe Back to the Future 2, you can throw all those right out. There is essentially not a good one in the pack. I mean, even from the Caddyshack – I mean, some are famously bad, like the Caddyshack stuff. Uh, but but mo- even stuff like Beverly Hills Cop 2, which is fine, is like no one talks about Beverly Hills Cop 2 uh, because it's just not – it's not very good. It's like – and so the fact that, like, there was a comedy, there's, you know, this and Back to the Future, I think, made very good sequel movies that suffer from problems that sequels do and weren't as good as their essentially perfect uh, uh, previous entries in the in the series. So that's where we're coming from. This movie's a blast. Um, Peter, before we get into it, um, some specific stuff any further, uh, what are your alternate taglines? Uh, my first one is uh, paint me like one of your Carpathian boys. And the <laughs> That's second, good. The next one is who arted? Solid. <laughs> I don't think this was the original tagline, but when they remarketed uh, them on DVD in uh, like 2000, they they had the tagline for the first one that was um, we're ready to believe you. And then the second one was be ready to believe us, which I really liked. But for some reason, that was in my head rewatching this time. And it's like, well, no, uh, it's not. It's not now. You need to believe us in this one because once again, it's it's essentially the same structure. So the quick recap is: uh, after the events of the first movie, the Ghostbusters have are under a uh, judicious uh, estrangement order that uh, does not allow them to practice ghostbusting because they got sued uh, by a bunch of people in the city who uh, obviously thought the events of the first uh, film were fake news and they were con men. And so they've been doing different things. Uh, Ray and Winston entertain children at kids' parties to, I would say, not great receptions. Uh, Egon just works on his experiments and Peter is a – Talk, took his talk show host persona in the first one and host a like a I assume a public access or local level of uh, news of the strange and he has psychics and stuff on. So uh, Dana, who married someone else and had a baby and then that person left, uh, her 
stroller stopped in the middle of the street. She enlists the help of the Ghostbusters who uh, dig into the middle of the street to find that there's a river of slime under there. That leads to uh, them getting caught for uh, practicing Ghostbusters. They go to court. The slime has this um, properties that uh, reacts to emotions in the room. And as such, the uh, some some people, some ghosts pop out of the slime in the courtroom. They save the day. They are able to practice as Ghostbusters. We get the montage of them as Ghostbusters, where they are get to go do all the fun Ghostbusting stuff that I wish we oh I always wish we could see more of. And then they're also then unraveling the bigger plot of this movie, why they're finding slime, what's going on there. So essentially what ends up happening is the slime is funneling to this museum where Vigo the Carpathian is stuck in a painting. Again, a, a god who destroyed people and then somehow got trapped in a painting. He's trying to get out and as more anger fills the street, he'll be able to resurrect himself into a new baby, which is Dana's baby. So he eventually gets the baby. He, The Ghostbusters uh, can't crack the slime shell that has taken over the um, the museum. And so they try to break the anger in the city by uh, taking a powerful icon of hope to bring joy to everyone. So they pour slime all over the Statue of Liberty, make it dance with uh, Jackie Wilson, and then cracks open the museum with its uh, torch. They jump in and eventually uh, save the day. As if you don't know the plot of Ghostbusters 2 or know most of the lines uh, by heart. So – Here's something to get out of the way this movie. Obviously, you know where we stand, and I don't think we need to go in our history too much, except as a kid, I did like this one. I think it was less scary, and even though I really liked the first one, I was a very easily scared child, and so uh, a little less uh, devil, dog, monster, weird sex stuff probably didn't fuck me up as much when I was five. But this movie does have a very similar structure to the first one. It kind of resets, and I think the reset works because I I kind of buy the idea that they would be sued out of existence after having unlicensed nuclear accelerators on their back and all and running around with a siren that hasn't been sanctioned by the city. Like that all works in universe, but also there's a ton of movies that follow the same structure from sequel to sequel, and you know James Bond movies would be. A very easy example, Godzilla movies, and the core being that being a super spy is so fun or having a dinosaur destroy cities is so fun that you can just put other shit around it and it's fine. You can keep doing the same thing over and over again because the core idea is so interesting and so fun to watch. And guess what? Fuckers. Uh, Ghostbusters about four people catching ghosts is the same way. It is fun to watch. The people involved are funny people. The, the science of capturing ghosts and this kind of thing they do is great. I would have watched 20 of these movies where there was a new big bad every week and I would have loved it. And I kind of did because that's what they did on real Ghostbusters. And it was great. And one of the few cartoons of the era that I still get some enjoyment of uh, watching it now. That is a good point that a lot of uh, cartoons of the era were um, our trash have aged really, really poorly. Um, notably the, he-Man and She-Ra. Oh like my them. god, they're so bad. They're so <laughs> terrible. At least I can't even watch them drunk as a joke. Yeah, at least She-Ra has a really great Christmas special that's like funny yeah, that's on good. accident entirely. But it's like funny and goofy and like fits in well with the season. He-Man is just like this trash show that for some reason as a kid I thought was amazing. Same thing with G.I. Joe. Real Ghostbusters at least had like comedy writers in there. It was But they did have they did have it structured as like interesting big bad. So yes, there was like a dream monster or a bigger. 
Yeah, dream uh, dream monster who like was like a Freddy Krueger, or they had like an HP Lovecraft episode, or or there was something wrong where ghosts were. You know, they had to find a specific ghost out of the thing, and it was this idea that these what what these four people do is so inherently interesting that as long as you build some funny dialogue and show some interesting monsters, that people are going to enjoy the episodes and they could have done that with movies no problem because the four core people are great the concept once again the concept of ghost catching is great so sure give me a new movie every two years with some jokes and a new ghost big bad that they need to take over and that is a series that i will watch 20 movies of i yeah um I I said before um, that this movie is I think it's held to unfair standards and that's fine if you want to hold this movie to the highest standards in the world but I'm going to tell you why this movie where we are going to tell you why this movie works for us and maybe you can see it in a new light by the end of this episode uh, this movie is something that I have this is maybe a movie that I've seen more than any other movie it's up there for me I did not need to rewatch it for for this podcast I knew no. every beat. Almost. I actually have one little point on that that I'll get to right after yours because uh, there is a component of um, Ghostbusters movies that is a reason why I can keep rewatching them. But go ahead. I've seen, you know, whatever, Christmas Vacation, Beetlejuice, John Carpenter's The Thing. Like, I'm trying to think of what movies would actually, like, be in, in competition with this. But And that's not to say that this movie is uh, any uh, – you know, in a more uh, critical analysis level, as good as those movies, I don't think it's uh, as good as the first movie. Um, this this audit will have some words to say about the movie. It's not going to be totally just a nostalgia trip. I mean, it's a podcast, so it'll be exclusively words. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I loved this movie as a kid. Um, I was purely in the like hand-me-down nostalgia uh camp for this uh my older siblings and my parents love the ghostbusters movies um i had you know as a kid i dressed up as a ghostbuster for a bunch of halloweens like so did oh, my I did brother. as an adult. I imagine. yeah i i also have a full-grown ghostbusters you get, you get the inflatable pack no, so uh, I made a conscious effort when I was like 23, 24. I was like sick of coming up with new Halloween ideas for these Halloween parties I was going to. So one year I just like went, bought a brown jumpsuit, uh, bought some patches to the Ghostbusters patches and stuff, uh, got them sewn on. And that has been my like plan B costume for every <laughs> single Halloween party I've been to since because like sometimes stuff just pops up and you're like, I do not feel like fighting in a Halloween superstore for to pay $60 for them plastic piece of shit. Like I have an actual thing in my closet as a backup. And the reason I feel comfortable with that is because like no one's going to challenge you on the Ghostbusters stuff. And if anybody did, like I'm there because it's. It is one of my favorite things. The Ghostbusters as a series, as a franchise, is one of my favorite things. I was very, very happy to have liked the uh, the the Ghostbusters 3, the Ghostbusters reboot, whatever you want to call yeah, it. Yeah, I love uh, it. That's That was a hard time for a Ghostbusters fan, though, because you're like, yeah, more Ghostbusters. Like, I had chills watching that movie. And again, it's just because it's like, hey, guess what? I like ghosts being caught in this way. Um you make a halfway decent movie around it. I'm going to be very happy when I hear the theme song and see a trap and proton packs. And they made more than a halfway decent movie around it. So I was like, all excited. Is very fucking funny. Yeah. 
And it's like that all, but like being telling people all of a sudden, like, like your favorite movie was Ghostbusters, which had been fine for 32 years, all of a sudden became like another conversation you had to have. Like, just to be clear, I love Ghostbusters and I'm not an MRA. It's just a thing I've loved my entire life. I have Ghostbuster sheets that's been taken from me by some very aggressive misogynists. And and now do I hate it? I can't hate the thing I love, but people are ruining my thing. Yes, yes, I agree entirely. There was a there was a thing going on and I and uh the Ghostbusters movie apparently did well, but not well enough. Um, which on one hand is like uh, you know, a good thing because like we don't have to have this fight again. But on the other hand, it's a bad thing. Fuck that. I want, I want them to keep making more. Yes, I would gladly have this fight every three years uh, if it means that Kate McKinnon, one of the funniest fucking people on the planet, gets to team up with some of the other funniest fucking people on the planet and make a supernatural horror movie. Or instead of having that fight every year, how about the fact that it's 2018 and there's literally real world things to get angry about on a daily basis. Maybe all those people who spent even an ounce of energy freaking out that women could be Ghostbusters too could maybe, I don't know, put any amount of energy into stuff that matters. But anyway. The franchise is something that I am protective over, but I am uh, very welcoming to new voices in it, uh, new applications of it. And I think on a more primitive level, I, you know, I like to credit like early experiences with The Shining and The Exorcist and, you know, great horror TV like Tales from the Crypt as like the reason that I'm really into horror movies now and why it's like something I'm obsessed with and why I write like horror fiction. But really like save it for plugs. Ghostbusters has to be like, yeah, the real answer for why I'm into all that stuff. Right. Yeah. It's essentially horror comedy that was given to children and being yeah. like hey kids do you want to do you want to see a bunch of ghosts and then a bunch of funny people like smashing up against the ghosts like yeah obviously it's not even a, it's not a children's movie but you're right it was it was given to children by parents and and uh, the world by like all the toys and marketing efforts and stuff like that and that's kind of why this series has stayed with me for so long um i wanted to save some of this for when we talk about the original ghostbusters but I'll at least mention that I loved these movies as a kid when I thought they were action horror movies. They didn't strike me as all that funny. And I I still remember trying to find them once at a video store in junior high and being very confused that they were in the comedy section. Uh, Because I'm like, these aren't comedies. These are like scary, like exciting movies. It would be like finding Raiders of the Lost Ark in a comedy section. It's like, oh, there's jokes, but... This is a, you know, this is an action movie. This is a scary action movie. Like, it didn't really hit my brain that it was a comedy until much later. So, that's kind of why both of these movies have stayed with me so much and why I consider them, like, favorites is because the movie that I watched as a kid when I loved this movie is a completely different movie that I watch now from every perception sense. The things I get out of them are are completely different. Both of those versions of it are work. So there's not that many movies that not only hold up from when you saw them when you were four and loved them, but basically become a whole different movie. And it's one thing I still love about these movies. They're so dense with gags and jokes that I still find myself catching things that I never noticed or never struck me as hilarious before. 
And I do have an exa- I have an example from this movie. I was like, I had to pause the movie, Peter. I kept laughing, thinking about the line. I got into that like a skipping record where every time the line ran back through my head, I was like giggling, and I couldn't stop. I had to pause the movie, and it was a line that never I never even struck me before. But it was like I was dying, and it was <laughs> like I'm gonna try not to lose it again because I just watched it yesterday, but. He when Peter is when Peter is talking to Dana at the apartment at the beginning when they go to check out the baby and he's kind of talking to her about like how they could make a relationship work and Dana is shooting him down uh, over and over and then at some point he finally gives up and runs towards the baby. He gives up by just saying, "Well, I may have a lot of personal problems, I guess, but I, at least I'm a total professional at my job." <laughs> and then grabs the baby. That line or that like delivery never struck me as hilarious before, but I was doubled over at how like childish and, and ridiculous it was for him to just go, yeah, well, I guess I lose. I have a ton of personal problems, but at least I'm going <laughs> to solve my problem. Bill Murray is really great about having both the, the fireworks and the like little like the f- firecrackers in yeah. the, the bed where you're like, you're not even noticing them because of all of the, the booms and... You're still laughing from the boom, not noticing that the other one's whizzing in a funny direction before it before it explodes. And that has been my experience with these movies as an adult for my entire life. I constantly – I've seen Ghostbusters, the first one. There's definitely no movie I've watched as much as Ghostbusters. And I still will find something funny in a delivery or a moment that I never noticed before. And it's the same thing with this one. Like, this one had me – like having trouble breathing from laughter for a movie that I've seen consistently for, I don't know, came out in 1989. I'm sure I saw it right then. So I don't know, whatever, whatever math tells you almost 30 years. Like, and I still, it still got me. And that has always been the case with these two movies is there's something new to hang your hat on as the funniest line in the movie. Every time you watch it. Uh, it kind of uh, is sloppy. It, it has moments that seem to be setting up something that don't go anywhere uh, towards the end. There's a uh, transformation scene with Ray that feels like it kind of comes out of nowhere. It's pretty, pretty half-assed. Yeah, and, and a lot of that has to do with um, the movie was a compromised beast from the script to the production. And uh, it shows if you actually watch like the deleted scenes in this movie, the deleted scenes are like deleted for a reason, which is true. Mm. of Most deleted scenes. This is not a slag on the movie. Oh, couldn't get your deleted scenes in order. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They're just like mostly, you know what I'm talking about. Most deleted scenes are just kind of trash because they are they were left on the cutting room table for a reason. But I'm always happy to see them because I'm like, okay, this would have changed the focus of the movie or this was them just this not being here was them focusing on a different part of the movie. Uh, this was them deciding that these didn't fit with the tone of the movie. This is a movie that was definitely made in the the editing bay. Um, I, yeah. I think that it's it's a very well directed movie. Like the the actors are all very comfortable, but not lazy. But this is a movie that was made in the editing bay because there is a flowing magic from the way the score, which is a very like zippy, fun sort of like. Uh, it's a very like New York comedy score. It's it's uh, it feels a little bit old timey, but then it's punctuated by more modern like R and B rap pop songs. And by modern, I mean from nineteen eighty nine. Um, yeah, that sort of tonal flow makes it feel like a piece of itself. But like 
if you're watching this movie as like a structured movie, you're going to see stuff that doesn't fit. But if you're watching this movie as characters you love getting into a new adventure, and sometimes the, there's loose ends, that's going to it's going to affect your experience. I think. Yeah, and I think so. I'm not immune to the fact that this movie is not perfect. Um, I mean, this movie has issues, and I think it can be. I think it gets in its own way, and some of that, like you said, is not having as much of a consistent vision. And a lot of unenthused people, very funny unenthused people, uh, that are still working from a very good core idea. But they, there's a little lack of enthusiasm and a, l- a little lack of trust in the audience. I think the entire movie's problem can be summed up in one moment and one scene. And that's the scene where Rick Moranis gives his opening statement in, in the courtroom scene. It's very famous, you know. It's the because uh, one time I turned into a dog and they helped me. And that whole delivery, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that whole delivery and the speech and the opening statement is hilarious. It is so, so good. It's not just Rick Moranis being wildly out of his element in the most Rick Moranis way. Uh, the, 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 the writing is like so perfectly dumb and pointless but still like you can kind of see the little like grain of a point he was trying to make to prove but it relied too much on personal experience and that personal (laughs) experience was so ridiculous it makes no sense so it's so funny from delivery to writing to everyone's reaction shot and it's a genius moment in a very funny moment and then what does it do he sits down and he has Egon leave – or he – I guess that he in this would be Ivan Reitman. But then Egon leans over and says, thanks, Lewis. Short but pointless. Like he, <laughs> he describes the joke, right? He's saying that that was sh- – like there's nothing really funny in my opinion anyways of him saying short but pointless. He's just describing what we saw. And – I think that's the Ghostbusters 2 story. It's having something amazing and perfect and wonderful and on par with every anything in the first movie and then undercutting it with either being too obvious or not having a real joke there. It was unnecessary for him to say that, but it's like there to fill time a little maybe too. So I think that's the, the summation of Ghostbusters 2 problem. It has all these wonderful – perfect genius moments and then it has these moments where it's like you couldn't have thought of a better joke there or why did you even waste time on that that's essentially the issue in a nutshell with ghostbusters 2 is it just it doesn't know how to get out of its own way sometimes i agree when the actors are in a scene that makes sense for the movie and is you know everybody understands their purpose in the scene every actor understands their purpose in the scene as a character and the jokes are there there's a genuine magic there's a scene where the whole team is going into the museum they're facing vigo for the first time sort of what they think is sort of symbolically but it's kind of literal because they're going right up to the picture peter vagman is taking photos of it and making like jokes like like oh you got it you got it like Pretending like it's an actual model. Um, yeah, and he's in a in, in classic Peter Venkman is like not taking the situation seriously by having his own little commentary on it. And he's not reading the room, right? Like, so the fun thing about Venkman yeah. is that he's entertained by his own shit, but he never laughs at his own shit. Yeah. So he's he's like he's entertaining himself. He has to be he has to be entertaining himself because there's no other reason why anyone would be this ridiculous. Uh, and so <laughs> even even his friends are like sort of like 
both protecting him while he's taking his pictures, but then also like, hey, let's let's go. You're being like really loud. The whole point is to not draw attention that we're taking pictures and you're shouting in a museum. Screaming, yes. Yeah, scr- shouting at a picture um, while uh, uh, Janos is trying to keep you from the picture because Janos has already been converted by Vigo. So... That scene is a great re- a great little scene because, like, all the characters understand their purpose. Every character knew why they needed to be in that scene. It feels like the first movie where, like, the the actors and the characters both feel like they fit the moment. It's setting up later that Rey is going to be converted by Vigo. Um, yeah. Or not even converted, possessed. Yeah. And so, when that, that – the whole scene is very funny because it's a bunch of very funny people performing very well, doing a lot of good, like, uh, spatial relationship jokes, particularly the way they're trying to distract Janos, but Janos is not being distracted. Um, it's a bunch of pros, like, working on a scene. But there are scenes in the movie where you're like, so was their direction here just, like, be funny – and throw slime at each other because it's not working. Yeah. Like when they first come out of the tunnels. <laughs> yeah, I think that speaks to, like I said, the fact that they just they have all these great scenes and they, and they should have chopped a little more or thought of better gags in those moments. Because it just it's a lot of ups and downs in this movie and it's overall lands very up. But it is just so much like, why did you do that? Like, just have them show up in the slime at the dinner which I think the dinner itself was kind of like a, a wasted scene. But if you like, just have him show up in the slime of the dinner, like yelling enthusiastically, because that's what's funny about the Ghostbusters. Like what makes the Ghostbusters work is it's, it's the mundaneness of the insanity that they're doing. So everyone else in the city, it's the whole like New York thing. Like they're not, Oh, we're not affected. We just eat my pizza pie. I, don't even I was wondering this. when we were going to talk about the pizza pie. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, I think someone eats a pizza at least once in this movie, or maybe that's the first one. The first uh, movie has pizza pie. It also has Chinese. Like, it's, it's a very, say, it's very, very food-oriented. Yeah, it's a very food-oriented New York movie. But they, you know, it's the, it's the no one's affected by the ghost they're seeing, um, and they it's it's all sort of banal, and, or banal, as some people correctly pronounce it. Um, and so... Um, um, <laughs> <laughs> and so that's that's the funny scene. The funny scene in there is them showing up at a diner covered in slime and yelling about um, a monster taking over the world while they're trying to have a nice meal. And then everyone else is just kind of looking at them like, oh, my, how inappropriate. Like not really listening to the fact that they're talking about a river of slime and a god taking You're over. scaring the straights. You're, yeah, exactly. So the part of them like – momentarily getting affected by the slime and fighting. I guess that kind of sets up some plot, but this movie is really bad at at setup and explaining exposition. This that is another area where this movie just doesn't it's over explaining to the audience too much. Um there's the first like 10 minutes of the movie has a lot of funny dialogue uh and then a lot of dialogue where Dana just out of nowhere like says something that Egan should Egon should already know. Like, well, my husband left and then we just didn't see a point in doing it. It's like, it's like, I get it. You're trying to let us know where they're at, but you're clunky as a compliment. There is uh, a lot of unfunny stuff that needs to be delivered by very funny people. Yeah. And I do think that uh, Sigourney Weaver is very happy to be in this movie. Yeah. I think that she's not, I don't think she's wasted in this movie. I think that she gets a lot of great, like emotionally wrought stuff. She gets a lot of really great, she gets to scream. 
which Sigourney Weaver is one of our great scream queens, despite the fact that like she's not known as that because an alien, she's so like sober and there, right? Mm-hmm. And same thing with aliens. Um, there are moments where I'm like, yeah, like kind of one of the best dramatic genre actors working here. Like you can come up with something better than her just throwing out her whole life story for for everybody for a group of yeah. people that already knows. Like there's there is some there's some clunkiness with the movie that makes it feel like a troubled production because it makes it feel like the people that had, were were shooting a scene had almost forgotten what had happened in the script and what the point of the script was. Like they 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 were just like, all right, well we got to establish this information in this this scene really quickly. So yeah, Dana's going to explain a bunch of shit, and everyone's like, hey, but like, what if Dana um can uh you know make this a joke or uh, she has to you know basically like get interrogated by Peter and they're like, no no no, let's just have like her explain all the shit and then Peter interrogates her. <laughs> yeah, but that's the thing is like. The Peter scene when they're talking about why their relationship didn't work, that explained all this stuff. It's it's that problem that a lot of movies have in general, not good movies and bad movies, is they they lose a little faith in the audience or they lack a little faith in the audience and they want to be very clear what's going on. And that can, you know, especially be true of movies that have a five-year absence from the last time that you see them where they're so worried about making sure the audience knows what's going on so they can proceed with the plot that they, A, don't give the audience enough credit, and then B, kind of take the wheels off before it gets to the fun stuff. But again, I think this movie still works because even though that line of dialogue and that kind of, I got to give you some quick updates of my life or like when the other one that's like, that's when Bill Murray runs into uh, the mayor's assistant, like, and he like quickly explains to him stuff that he already knows about what happened um, when they got sued and why they're not Ghostbusters anymore. Stuff that the court and the, the judge could have explained and does explain 10 minutes later in the movie. Like you, they, they didn't need to have this stuff because there was better versions of it already. But at the very least, like, let's let's talk about those moments. They're clunky and they don't give the audience enough credit, but one of them comes in a scene where Egon is just torturing people for science, which is the best version of Egon. I don't have a level of human empathy, but I just get the science, so I am just going to do things and not even pretend to care about how it treats people. He's not evil. He's not bad. He's just completely, uh, completely apathetic. And thinks it doesn't matter in the science part. Can we spark you real quick? Yeah. Ray is like a little bit more socially well adjusted. And the fun part about Ray is that Ray gets sucked into Egon's like deep stuff. Yeah. yeah. He, he understands it all. Egon is not, I don't know, maybe he's smarter, but we don't see Egon being any smarter than him. But Ray just gets no. sucked in. But Ray also is like a little bit more charming, like a little bit more personable. Yeah, he's a he's a human being as opposed to a robot that just goes along with crazy schemes. So in that scene with Egon that has the really clunky Dana dialogue is where Egon's doing experiments and it kind of shows you even that part of like his lack of empathy because not only do you see what he's torturing all these people to and and just very like unconcerned about their situation but is very interested in the readings it's giving them. When Dana expresses sadness towards uh disconnecting with peter he holds up the pke meter on her 
and just yeah. kind of quickly looks and writes down some notes. So it's that's a great scene. The whole scene is great. I mean, kind of a sociopath who cares more about science. He works in the real world. He's like an Oppenheimer. Who, yes. But Oppenheimer at least got to say that he was. He acknowledged what he had done. He am became death. He became you know? it. Of course, like. In, in most other movies, he's a villain, or in real life, he's a villain. But it works because it's a comedy and it's Harold Ramis. But so playing that level of sociopathy for the sake of science as a comedy is is funny. And he does it so well because he's so uh, quiet about it. Like, he's not grandiose. He's not like, we have a breakthrough. He's just, you know, he sees his friend really sad and he notices that. And then he... Uh, he writes down a little note about it. He registers it. He just doesn't care uh, on a human level. He just finds it fascinating of what else could be happening to her, uh, experiencing that heavy of an emotion. It works well as a comedy. And then the Peter scene that has the clunky reintroduce what happened with the mayor dialogue is followed by one of the funny scenes in the movie, too, with the with the uh, week of the world of the psychics uh, oh, stuff. So, so good. We can talk about some of those scenes specifically, but again, I think if you're the type of person that doesn't like this movie, you're getting bogged down on Dana explaining to Egon about what happened in her marriage, and Egon already knows that, and or Peter explaining to the mayor's assistant what happened between him and the mayor, which the Peter the mayor's assistant already knows that. Those scenes are clunky. Or the slime. The, the whole yeah. nature of the slime is very like the slime does whatever the movie needs and, the slime. And they explain it over and over again. And that's a net. They could have explained it once or it's just magic slime that ghosts pop out of. Like it it doesn't matter. But all of that is always wrapped in these amazing scenes or funny scenes or like it's definitely a grab bag. But if you put your hand in that bag, you're getting candy more often than you're getting a mousetrap. I understand grab bags. <laughs> Wait, hold on, hold on. What kind of grab bags are you running for these children? So, I look, normally a grab bag is you actually, I think, get an actual bag. You just don't know what's in it. What yeah. I have done, Peter, is I have uh, presupposed a bag that sometimes has candy in it, sometimes has a mouse trap. When you reach in there, you don't know which one you're going to get. But in my uh, metaphorical example, it's mostly candy is what I'm saying. Uh, okay. So, like, let's say hypothetically you see there's a mouse trap in there before you put can't, You can't there. look. You just got to put your hand in. Well, what kind of what kind of cheese am I looking looking to get if, if this is not a mouse trap? Well, there's no, there's no cheese. It's just so a wait, mouse it, trap. So, it's a mouse like you trap under, no cheese? You understand. Well, so, <laughs> if your intent – with a mouse trap was to catch mm -hmm. mice. Mm -hmm. Highly recommend putting cheese in there. They love it. Yes. They love the cheese. If your intent is to uh, press, have a human hand press uh, whatever the trigger is that causes it to snap for yeah. means of a punishment for putting your hand where in a bag, mm -hmm. you the cheese is redundant. You don't so, need it. I, You know, I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying. But it feels a little mean to snap someone's hand with a with a mouse trap and not give them a wall cheese. Well, but do you think when do you think the mouse gets the cheese when it dies? Yeah, it's the last meal. It's but like you think it gets enough time to digest it and chew it after it's, it's the last been... supper for the for the mouse. Okay, but like at best it just goes in the mouth for a second. I mean, at least he gets to taste it in his mouth. I don't give a shit what happens to the food after it hits my belly. I mean, if it can, because once they pick it up. That's when the mousetrap goes. So, I mean, I don't know. I don't know the time difference, but they might not even get it to the mouth, Peter. Here's the thing. Um, 
I just want cheese. So I think what we should be talking about then is less what's in the mousetrap, but what's in the bag. Okay, so, <laughs> so you, these, grab we, bag, these grab bags can have cheese in it, but that just feels unrealistic. Can we put cheese in both the grab well, bags? Slice cheese. Slice cheese in the grab bags and also on the mousetrap? I mean, if again, if you, but if you touch the mousetrap, Peter, you're not going to get the cheese. How are why you would, gonna, why how would you, I not get the cheese? Is it? Is it? Because your hand's going to be stuck in a mousetrap. You're going to drop the cheese. Is the cheese going to? I drop the cheese. Five second rule. I got a free hand. No, it's uh, again. It's not because of the five. Like, but your hand's in a bag, right? Yes. Have you ever seen a mousetrap? Yes. What happens is, is you roll the dice, <laughs> your, your your piece lands you on a board. You spend 20 minutes setting and, up and then a game that's yeah, not fun. Then there's a Rube Goldberg device, and then you don't get the cheese. You're trapped in a cage. And then everyone goes, oh, do you guys want to play something else? Has I'll tell you what, if anyone listening could tell me how Mousetrap is played, I would be fucking shocked. Because you all know you did what I did. You went over to someone's house that had Mousetrap, you're like, yay, Mousetrap. And then you just set up the Rube Goldberg contraption and you made it go. I don't, I've don't. Ne- I've never played the game in my life. I'm assuming there's dice rolling and, and moving around the board. No idea. I don't know why you would why why you'd bother with the game when you because that's the climax, like, right? It's just someone lands on the spot. You just jump and right that to happens. the climax. Yeah, it's a money shot compilation. Yeah, <laughs> people love those. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I'm just gonna watch a YouTube compilation of people completing Mousetrap. <laughs> oh man, that'd be great. Bringing Mousetrap to completion. Um, so, um, so I really want to talk about uh, Sigourney Weaver in this movie. Yeah. Before you get into it deeper, she delivers one of my favorite lines. Can't tell you what that Taxi! is. Taxi. No, it's the uh, when when no. she gets home from the date, and yeah. uh, Janine asks, uh, "Where's Peter?" or "How's Peter?" and uh, Dana says, "Oh." He was arrested and then just like puts her coat and sits down to watch the movie. Like there's no very deadpan like this has happened on a lot of their dates. Just one of one of those endings where he gets arrested. So she's – the way that she deals with Peter is very, very relatable to me on a real life because um, as somebody who uh, has uh, – a man who has internalized Peter Bankman in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah. I mean me too. He yes. was like – this is how I want to be able to relate to people is to be so cool that my feelings can never be hurt by rejection. <laughs> like, it's a sad way to put it, but that that is, yes. a, that is a lot of it. It's like, oh, I would like to not feel pain when the people hurt me. I just want to be the cool guy who gets the laughs. Yes. And so I had to walk back a lot of of that shit over the years where I was, yeah. I'm Peter Bankman, but I had to walk back at it because I was like, well, I don't actually want to be that person. And I'm not actually that person. That person is a fictional character that Bill Murray is depicting. And it sounds like Bill Murray might also not be that person in real <laughs> life. The, the way that she deals with him by like giving him absolutely no fuel and the way yeah. he like hunts for it. And he just like keeps like trying to find her. And then when he actually like at the dinner scene, which you mentioned is like being a little bit extraneous, I like it because at that point I'm like I start to buy their relationship coming back to life because it's like the reason it works is because Venkman's not making a joke. He's not like trying yeah. to fuck with her. He's just like telling her what he wants. He wants her and this is like what the di- what the dinner is. And that's when she starts like responding more to him and she's like giving him more of a chance. And I like that you can see Dana being 
both a character that's like pushing him off and like definitely not giving him any more fuel when he's he's being irritating but also on the other end of that like she is a little bit she is charmed by him there's a reason she's going she is yeah she's trusting him with her baby like all that that's what works about them i've I've heard a lot of criticism about this movie and it's fine if this is what you think that you know he's just a little too aggressive and he's not hearing the word no and obviously i mean it it does have a kind of that groucho mark. It's worse in the quality. First movie, I think in this mo- than in this movie. Yeah, because they had a relationship, and it's a, cl- a little bit of the. That doesn't mean you're like entitled to then harass people. Yes, but but it is. Um, I but I think it does go. I think the first movie there's a line of dialogue that kind of unlocks it for me, uh, which is the the part where she kind of looks at him like like you would something that you are interested in on some level, and and she goes, "You are so." odd and she she almost looks at him like a specimen that she is fascinated by to be studied like i don't think she's interested in him you know as a sexual or romantic partner at that point but she is interested in a way like what what is going on with this like charismatic weirdo and you know she she says yes to a date pretty quick in the first one but she she holds she holds her guard because she knows that this person's playing with like eight other layers on so i feel like it it works a little bit because she always she doesn't ever feel harassed even though he does behavior that would easily be considered harassing because and part of this is what you get when you get Sigourney Weaver she always seems like she's in control of the situation and Bill Murray always seems like if he ever got a a real no that um that he would he would probably leave her alone and I understand that that is a landmine to say real no at a time like this and I I'm not saying that lightly or to try to say that like saying no isn't saying no but the I mean the way the movie is written is that she is interested in him right yes like very, that it's is very the obvious so it's not that like He's misreading the signs that she's interested in him. She is interested in him and displaying some very obvious lines or some very obvious signs, even if she's not quite sure what his deal is and not quite sure um, if um, if a date is a good idea. So that's very hard to say at this time, not because just because there are too many people who see themselves as a Peter Venkman and who are getting clear no's or getting pretty clear implications of no's or implications of I'm not interested, please leave. This is me being polite and not picking up the signs. So that is where I think movies like this can be rightfully damaging because everybody sees themselves as the Peter Venkman. And so they don't realize that what they're doing is wildly inappropriate. But I I also feel like that's hard to put on these movies because she is interested, very much so. And it's very clear, even if it's a again, a, a fascination, and because it's Sigourney Weaver, because she's, you know, such a such a presence herself, she always feels like she's in control of the situation. Yeah. I agree. I think that's what saves it from feeling predatory or weird in in the uh, era where a lot of people are starting to question, rightfully starting to question, like, where did these male attitudes of entitlement come from? And, like, the you know, the movies that have stuck around are pretty good culprits. They're pretty easy targets. 
Um, and you have to, and some of them, and some of them deserve more credit than others. I think Revenge of the Nerds is definitely a softer target than Ghostbusters, but I think that Ghostbusters still deserves a little bit of, yeah, a little bit of flack just because, um, it is, though it is a movie that was, came out and was produced in the eighties, a long time ago, it, uh, the, the movie is still treated and presented as a movie for, you know, men of all ages and is still on TV a lot. It's still pushed forward by, you know, uh, a lot of uh, it's still pushed forward by by a lot of sources as like one of the best comedies. So I think I think it's fair to give the movie shit. But I think that even this one kind of fixes some of the the issues from the first one. I understand that there are there are levels to the predatory behavior of men being depicted in a positive light. And clearly this movie especially or these movies especially or maybe it's just any Bill Murray movie um, has inspired some truly awful human beings that see him as some sort of uh, hero, forgetting the fact that they are they are trying to take movie behavior and <laughs> apply it in their own messed up minds to to real life as to um, you know the, it's the old Onion article right the romantic comedy behavior gets man arrested. You know, <laughs> it's true. It's true. It it clearly is meant to be a Groucho Marx, that kind of like charming weirdo that inspires caution but interest. But um this movie and a lot of other eighties and Bill Murray movies maybe rightfully deserve some flack for inspiring uh many people who who just thought persistence at any cost was was the right way to behave in situations. So so can I talk about one scene this this is such a weird thing to talk about, but I we don't talk about like on our show that often about like watching movies and like having some sort of sexual awakening because it's just not the format of our show. And I always think like not everyone needs to know that information, but I will say that in this movie as a six year old, when I saw the scene of Janine uh, seducing Rick Moranis, something changed in me. Like, you know, I, I definitely was six, <laughs> but I definitely was six. But I, I remember watching that and go, I don't know what this is, but something's different now. So I, I, I understand what is, what's going on. I will never look at this movie the same way. I remember feeling flushed and not in an embarrassed way of like, oh, people are kissing and my parents are in the room. But like in a, well, <laughs> you know, it's the old joke. I hope this didn't just awaken something in me because uh, Janine in that scene is is like they're very funny. But there, there is something, again, these PG movies from the late 80s and early 90s are like, it's some hardcore, like, horny seduction for a uh, kids movie type follow-up. Uh, Janine in the first movie was more bookish and uh, even Bill, one of the jokes in the first movie that has not aged well was Janine don't don't give me that bug-eyed thing and then he like apologizes for it immediately but he still said it like it's a mean thing to say to somebody. Oh see I always I always took that as like because she's giving him this like stare of death for once again asking her to do something that she sees as beneath him. I didn't see it as like look based. I saw it as like don't stare at me like that because you're angry we all have work to do. But in this movie they sort of match her look to like a lot of things the, in this the, movie. It is the cartoon. more kids friendly. It's <laughs> yeah. They're matching her more to the cartoon which makes Janine less of a um, bookish 
slightly horny woman and makes her into a, like, liberated woman who's a little nerdy. And I think in that sense, like, it fits in better with today because, like, her sex life is not portrayed as, like, a weird thing. The only weird part about it is that, like, is that, like, her and Rick Moranis has never touched a woman. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, Louis Tully is, is also a weird guy, but like the movie thinks it's kind of beautiful that these two weirdos found each other. Yeah, and Dana's uh, D- Dana's so great when she sees them, like walks in on them, like fucking on her couch because she's like happy for Louis. <laughs> yeah, well, also Louis is probably going to leave her alone more, but <laughs> <laughs> well, he probably did eventually. I mean, yeah, she wouldn't let him into the apartment, I would imagine, if if he was still sexually harassing her on the reg. Yeah. If anyone – yeah, don't be mad at Bill Murray or be less mad at him. Louis Tully in the first one is really the – Yeah. Um, I, also, I know we'll do Ghostbusters regular one of these days. The joke in the first movie where Louis Tully is – uh, he he he's having a party, but he's only inviting clients over, and he's introducing people. <laughs> oh, <laughs> introducing yeah, people as they come in by their financial situation that brought them to <laughs> yeah, him. Who does no one is taxes? commenting on it. He's like, oh yeah, they had a trust issue with a dead uncle. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's, <laughs> yeah, there's there's clearly no attorney client uh, privilege with uh, with tax attorneys. So we're we're running out of time very quickly. It's kind of a rushed episode, but this feels like a good one to do because it's a movie we both love. It's a movie that most people have seen, and we'll be doing a Ghostbusters proper at some point in the future. So this will not be uh, the last time we talk. About Ghostbusters, I kind of want to do almost a lightning round of funniest moments, Peter, if you don't mind, because there's so much stuff I love. Um, And there's also – I realized maybe this is a good place to start for that. There are so many lines in this movie that I use in my daily life and have kind of forgotten they even come from Ghostbusters 2. Like – um, the everything you're doing is bad. I want you to know that line. Everything that you're doing all- is bad. I want you to I know want this. You to, yeah. The, where do you think all this is coming from? The sky. <laughs> <laughs> I say that way too often. I also, the other, Yanush has a lot of good lines, but the, the joyfulness is over. <laughs> the joyfulness is over. Janos, for being basically a few stereotypes shoved together, is so fucking funny in this movie. He's so bigoted, he almost surpasses stereotype and just becomes weird little man. Yeah, um, he's like, I'm dripping with goo. Yeah. Uh, there's that line, too, that I love this. I don't say ever, but the um, when uh, the kind of comments on every time Vigo comes, he announces himself in like this grandiose thing. And he's like, yes, yes, I've, I've heard all this already and then eventually gets to the new stuff he's like yes command me <laughs> but just his kind of like running down and like yeah no i get it yes yeah, scourge of carpathia i've heard all this um before there's one other line i don't want to forget uh that i say all the time which is i it's well i shouldn't say all the time but sometimes in meetings at work when they look at me to go aaron and i i've said a couple on a couple occasions the don't look at me i think these people are completely nuts (laughs) (laughs) it's it's such a good line after everyone's kind of shouting their stuff and they look to peter to you know add into it just the don't look at me i think these people are completely nuts uh i have a question for you yeah so there's a scene they're being interrogated after drilling a hole. The, the courtroom scene up to, yeah. oh my god, the Scolari brothers. That's yeah. the best. That is the best sequence in the movie. I think. Oh, 
Absolutely. And, like, first of all, the courtroom scene is one of the best sequences of this or any movie. And then, but also going into the hole is great, too, because I love the Peter doing the the New York accent and keep and his his like enthusiastic lying that even again we talked about Peter just liking to entertain himself like he is caught in a obvious lie and then just starts yelling some other stuff that is clearly only for him at that point but he's like well this is still fun i'm going to keep doing this yeah yeah it's very <laughs> revealing about the character when he's yeah. having so much fun being the new yorker cuz even when he this leads into the quote i have a question about in the courtroom scene cuz it's it's peter basically fucking around he's like what's it look like we're doing why don't you let us work we let you work like the whole yeah. the whole the whole thing um oh you want a pizza pie oh you what you want a pizza pie we're gonna fucking pizza pie we got a drill here <laughs> so uh they're in the they're in the courtroom scene and she says uh are you saying that you didn't dig a big hole in the middle of fifth avenue in the, in the middle of the street and he says uh there are so many holes in fifth avenue i don't think anybody would notice so here's my question is he referring to potholes or is he referring to assholes? Oh, definitely potholes. It's definitely potholes, but I like the idea of him referring to uh, that part of town as having a lot of assholes. That's good, too. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. It's a fun, it, the word holes is very funny. And the idea, that, the idea that some dumb thing that uh, Bill Murray said in 1989, <laughs> um, yeah. that scene is... Uh, so fucking funny to me. It's and so good. The de- ridiculous distraitment order. What's he called? Yeah, yeah, Rick Moranis is such an MVP. Yeah, the judicement mistrangement order, <laughs> <laughs> which is so great because like you don't have to be a lawyer to know what a restraining order is. No, the, but but I get the sense from him that you know because it's played by Rick Moranis, it's not even just that he doesn't know a lot of the stuff, which he clearly doesn't. Um, but also his, like, anxiety is so hot. Like, he can't even think straight at a certain point anymore. And he's just all, like, a manic energy of, like, just please make this be over. Like, he looks like he looks like someone in the middle of a panic attack that is, like, keeping it together enough to not run out of the room. And that's great. Like, the part where um, he chastises the other lawyer for, like, thinking that they're, they're both lawyers so they should be on the same team. <laughs> It's so good. Hey, we're Come both on, lawyers. we're both lawyers. Um, uh, and, and, then he, and then he goes, Your Honor, Your Honor, ladies and gentlemen of the audience, I don't think <laughs> it's fair to call my clients frauds. Sure, the blackout was a big problem for everybody. I was trapped in my elevator for two hours and I had to, and I had to make the whole time. But I don't blame them because one time I turned into a dog and they helped me. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> That's, again, that is a perfect piece of writing and delivery. It's so good and the whole courtroom scene of just um i also like i feel real um excitement and chills at that moment at the end like when they get their packs back on and they stop the ghosts and they walk out to people and and dan Aykroyd, which is like where dan Aykroyd excels in this movie is like they always call him the heart of the ghostbusters but it's that like unbridled enthusiasm so when he just yells when they walk out of the courtroom we're back it doesn't feel contrived like that that's a look of pure joy on dan Aykroyd's face and his his delivery matches that it's so funny to me like bill murray 
seems like he was on Saturday Night Live. Dan Aykroyd, I sometimes have to, like, remember that he was on Saturday Night Live just because his, like, real-life persona and Ray in Ghostbusters has merged so much for me that I forget that, like, he used to play, like, smarmy characters and – and he did all those very well. Like I, I love Saturday Night Live in that and that time, and Dan Aykroyd was very good at it. But his like his persona has merged so completely with Ray in my mind that I sometimes have to remember that like, oh no, he's an actor doing other things too. Yeah, I mean, I um, but like that's why he did like nothing but trouble. So he'd been playing these like Dan Aykroyd types for so long, or he did Dragnet. So, like, two of those movies... Well, Dragnet's a good movie, but... Dragnet's um, really good. The uh, Nothing But Trouble is a terrible, terrible movie. And well, it's nothing but trouble. It's nothing but trouble to watch that movie. Has uh, anyone that ever him. made a joke about that before? I imagine. I imagine every review <laughs> in ah, 1990X. Um, too late. He basically, in that in that that era, was trying at to, you know, over and over again, trying to just get work. And then occasionally he'd find a role that he could play a big weirdo. Uh, most of the time he was rejected for playing these big weirdos. And it's so funny because, like, Dan Aykroyd is best at playing a big character, like a, yeah. a larger-than-life goofball. But, like... In this movie and in Ghostbusters 1, like, he's pretty good as this, but the the problem with Ghostbusters 1 and 2, I will say, is that Vankman gets, like, 90% of the jokes, and then Lewis Tully in this movie gets a lot of them, but, like, Vankman gets, like, 90% of the jokes. Like, Egon doesn't get to be nearly as uh, funny. I- I think Egon gets a lot of good jokes. He has a he has a line in this movie that I think I'm going to try to start saying. I'm trying to force it into my vocabulary where he calls um where he calls a coffee cup a uh, hot beverage thermal mug. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. Like you Bill Murray's the fireworks factory and the like zigzags that also charm you when you watch it closer so that I feel like Egon's lines and how funny he is in these movies don't really blossom until maybe like five or ten times after you've seen him because he – I think I think Egon's got a lot of jokes, but they're so deadpan that it can be really easy to miss them with uh, or forget them when there's uh, magic ghosts and, uh, and of course, Bill Murray. That's a, Yeah, that's a great point. Bill Murray is a fucking black hole that just keeps sucking up all the comedy goodwill in the movie where it's like, uh, even if you're paying attention to the big jokes, you get something. If you're paying attention to like the small, subtle jokes, Bill Murray also has little lines in between where you're still laughing at the big jokes. So Egon has some good lines, but and, and, and Ray has some good lines, but only in scenes where Bill Murray is not talking. Yeah, it is funny that like, Dan Aykroyd's life is like playing his gross point blank character mostly and not this character. Yeah. You know, you think of like spies like us. He's like the smarmy. Uh, what, what, the guy that's the guy in Saturday Alive, his character who. Yeah. The consumer report. Yeah. That's like that's like his character that he took a couple edges off and like portrayed in most of his movies. Right. And then this is so like. No pretense, no irony, just a big old lovable goofball. Yeah. Having Ray be the converted one at the end is, um, I think it's the best choice because, well, for one, we haven't even fucking mentioned Winston. Winston gets so Oh, so like the movie? Yeah, the movie just ignores Winston so much. Um, 
but Ray, who seems like almost an innocent in a sense, like because he's like yeah. both a nerd, but like a nerd who's like um, tries to engage socially, whereas Egon usually is like I'm above this. The Oppenheimer comparison is pretty good. But, it is. Uh, it is shit though. Like you said though, that like. So Winston, like, he shows up when they need work in the second or the first movie, so he doesn't have much time. Why is he so not a part of it in this movie? But he should have been more a part of it. Like, he shows up in the court scene for moral support. Why wasn't he digging? A yeah, hole wait, why, why was he not in the court scene? That's such a weird thing. He is Our in the Ernie court Hudson scene. was not but he, busy, I assure you. He he was in the court scene, but he's not, you know, on trial because he wasn't digging the hole. So he just shows up and is like, good luck, guys. It's a weird thing. So I, I, I kind of get the idea that, like, I in the first movie, he's just supposed to be, like, a hired gun. Like, I, I really like that he's just a hired gun in the first movie because the idea that, like, they yeah. need to expand, they need to grow, and it's a good, if it's got a steady paycheck, I'll believe whatever you tell me to believe. Like, that's, yeah. a, that's a great line that establishes the character, and then the movie mostly leaves him stagnant, except for a scene where him and Ray are in a car talking about revelations. Yeah. And I've seen shit that'll him turn you so white. much less to do. They, he doesn't have a yeah. great scene in this movie. It's a real shame because he is he's really good in the first one. And this this was a perfect chance to expand his role uh, because he was a part of the team from the beginning. Um, as opposed he to should have some passion co- now. He should be he should yeah. be invested a little more. Yeah. So this movie has a lot of really good creepy moments. The subway scene with the heads on pikes. Again, how the fuck did you get a PG movie at a time when PG-13 existed? I think Janusz's eyes glowing really freaked me out when I was a kid. Um, but I also like that – and then the, like, the quick shots of Ghost are all really good. But one thing I do like that this movie does is it doesn't try to create this like – terrifying core monster. Gozer the Gozerian in the first one is like unknowable, scary, the dogs, there is this really sense of dark destruction and I do like that for the second one, I don't think Vigo's supposed to be that. He is kind of goofy. He chooses the most suspicious man in the world to like gather information for him. He keeps doing kind of oaf, dumb oafish things. Um, even Janusz kind of gets annoyed with him at some point. I think it works to have a uh, ancient, moldy Babylonian god who is kind of just dumb and out of touch more easily defeatable than 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 Gozer was. Like I don't I don't I don't view it as like a a secondhand copy without the threat. That feels intentional to me. I agree. Uh, and the idea that he's this dummy that you're you can uh, just bounce smart people off of, but he's extremely powerful is yeah. is a good villain. In the first movie it was also the same thing. It goes to the Gozerian and the all the uh the gargoyles, the Zool and uh, the fucking uh, Zool, who's the, who's Zool the, and Vince Clortho. Vince Clortho, like they were all like kind of dummies that didn't understand social context and were just kind of like getting walked. But they were around, they were but, threatening and scary. Yeah, they were threatening and scary, but like they they didn't understand like any sort of like context for the conversation. The, the conversation was yeah. less a conversation than just like I have to say something in English because like that is. That is what has been deemed fair by the cosmos. Like, what that's just, like, what I have to do. Um, and this, it's, like, it's a similar thing, I think. Because, like, he's also not really... Vigo is not particularly interested in having, like, a sparring match. He's just, like, these are my powers. I'm a big old dumb blonde. 
Yeah. I, I think, though, that the difference is that Gozer was, like, good at his job. Thankfully, they had that cross in the stream situation. But I, I think Vigo's bad at his job. He just is very powerful because he just makes a lot of dumb choices throughout the movie. Um, and it's not, it's not just the I have no cultural context. He just kind of seems like, give me that baby. I'm going to lumber towards it. Ah, oh, shit. They stopped me again. Like he's it's it's so much more goofy. And I think that's on purpose. I don't think it's supposed to be as threatening, which is why this movie didn't scare me as much as a kid. Like there were scary parts, but the ultimate threat of the movie seems so defeatable as opposed to the first one, which has this true sense of, like, overpowering dread in some of the final scenes. It does make the movie more kid-friendly, for sure, though the movie does primarily rely on plot that Vigo is going to take over the body of a baby so he can have an entire human life to wreak chaos before the body dies and then he'll be sucked into another portrait like there's a yeah i have a bernstein bears book that's about that oh nice so yeah what are your what are your final thoughts peter this movie is something that has been sort of thrown away into this cultural flotsam as a bad sequel disappointing sequel this sort of like death of a franchise thing and i think it's entirely unfair and i think going at it from the perspective of somebody that like watches a lot of comedies and watches a lot of post SNL comedies, watching these very funny comedians have to spread their wings and go on to create their own projects. Um, like, yeah, it, it, I can see why someone would be disappointed in comparison to the first movie, but when you compare it to literally every other comedy, <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, it's, it's great. It's actually like, Got a lot of, like, really wonderful scenes. It feels very original in terms of tone and execution. It doesn't feel like a rote rerun of a bunch of other movies, the way, like, Spies Like Us or, you know, a lot of Yeah, other- who's talking about Funny Farm? Yeah. No one. Yeah, exactly. There's this glut of awful comedies in the 80s and 90s that were produced by XSNL people and just like in general in Hollywood. And the idea that people would go after this movie so hard because they were holding it to this impossible standard is very compelling to me. Um, I love the movie. Uh, the nostalgia audit was a farce the whole time. Uh, I really came here to convince people to reassess Ghostbusters 2. Yeah, and even if you don't like it, I guess I'm, I I think we're both just kind of sick of it being like this. Like, a punchline's fine. Like, if you don't like it or think it's a cool that doesn't hold up for you, but, like, it... It does. It's it's taken on that internet life that I hate. That there's only like extremes. So, Ghostbusters Two is no longer like to some people a movie that they didn't find as funny and missing a lot of the specialness that they saw in the first one. It's one of the worst sequels ever. It's one of the worst movies ever. Like it's just a piece of garbage. It's like an exact quote from another yes. podcast I won't name, which just feels so like we're allowed to have nuance, like. You can think this is a movie that doesn't interest you. On on the flip side, you can think it's a four-star movie and, like, that's fine. This can be your – you could prefer this. It doesn't really matter. But I just – I don't understand what world you're living in when this is, like, one of the worst movies you've ever seen or one of the worst sequels ever. It's like you you are you are chalking you – are, you are taking a lot of things and not counting them for the purpose of being, like, a – um, 
hey, guess what? I'm the only truth teller, and this is all nostalgia for you. And it's bullshit. And that's like the worst type of nostalgia. Like this this feeling of being some sort of Alex Jones truth teller about the movies that you like as a kid to tell us that we didn't, or it's only nostalgia is so so boring. I'm not telling you you need to like the movie, but I think we did want to do this episode to reclaim a little bit of like, guys, it is not the worst movie ever made. And please stop. It's, you, stop acting like it is. You it's, know, it's yeah, not either. It, it, it's very distressing because I think that the in the bad movie age, I think that nostalgia cuts both ways and that it makes people further ingrained in movies that they have not seen in a long time. And it makes people, uh, you know, further. It makes people more caustic and violent against movies that they didn't love as a kid or in some cases loved as a kid haven't seen since they were a kid but have heard that it's terrible and are thus bending to the cultural winds uh yeah and i'm not saying that you're not allowed to like this movie there's a lot of very very smart people who do not like this movie but the idea that it is anything worse than just a okay comedy is like somewhat offensive to me <laughs> well it's 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 because i think this movie has become victim to something that i would call like a cultural vulture that looks for like these flawed movies and like feeds on them flawed movies that people like like because you can't you can't do it to like bona fide masterpieces although god knows there's enough internet videos that that try to but it's this like there there are problems with ghostbusters 2 it is not a perfect movie it suffers from stuff that we talked about and like that is like the perfect uh that's the perfect like uh carrion for for cultural vultures because it's like it stinks enough and people still want to eat it enough that it's like, I'm going to come here and ruin everyone's party. And that's that's exactly what this this movie, I think, more than most other movies that I can think of that have like become victim to that is is like the the patient zero. People just love to jump out there and shit on this movie. Like someone starts a thread that's like worse sequels. Ghostbusters 2 is going to be like one of the first five choices. Um, it's, it's just, it's so lazy and annoying and maybe you don't like the movie, but definitely the re one of the reasons Peter and I wanted to do this is like to fight back a little bit against this, this just unnecessary, I want to show how, how much I hate things more than you do. And I'm not, I'm not afraid to hate the stuff that you love. It's just so annoying. I, I really hate that kind of stuff. That's what I hate. I hate people that just like to hate things. Yeah, it's exhausting. Um, yeah, but uh, so this kind of wraps up Nostalgia Month. We've done a few movies that have been actual. Oh, my God, like, Peter, it feels like we just got started. Yeah, I know. It does feel like we just got started because um, we just got started four days ago. Um, so it is, a, it is a great way, I think, to wrap up the month because there's a, there, there's a middling path for a lot of these movies, but like, weirdly enough, we're fighting now to make this movie be seen on a cultural level as at least okay. Yeah. <laughs> that is, that is the- Take back the night! It's the hardest, it's the hardest position to, to get anybody excited about. Like, hey, 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 this movie yeah, this is... is in a masterpiece and it's also not terrible. It's somewhere in between. 
nuance is fucking boring. Yeah. And in theory, you never really need to watch it because it is true. You could just watch Ghostbusters again and be very satisfied, even if you've just watched Ghostbusters. But on the same note, it's all your favorite people having different ghost adventures. And you know what? Sometimes I guess you have to take control and decide – if you want to participate in a fun movie that's not fantastic, this movie's a lot of fun. And uh, th- I think this was a really successful nostalgia audit for us because this wasn't even my favorite revisit of the month. That was a little movie, as you heard about two weeks ago, uh, Tremors, which I always loved and haven't seen for a long time and loved the fuck out of it. So there wasn't a movie that we watched that did not just hold up, but like give me a newfound appreciation for moments or the movie as a whole. I think, Peter, compared to the Fool's Rush In month that we did this last time, I think we did a pretty good job. I think I do think we did a pretty good job. It's always hard to tell going into these nostalgia audits, which will be held in the future in March Don't or April. Don't sit tight. Yeah. Or do sit tight. March and April of every every year because uh, it's going to be during tax season. Because they're audits. They're audits. You guys know about word association. <laughs> Speaking um, of which, uh, one of our sponsors today is Auditable. Uh, <laughs> not not what you're thinking. It's just you hear people read uh, their tax filings out loud to give you some ideas for yours. Yes. It's called Auditable. Auditable. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, so we're next month, Peter, uh, we are doing something very different, something we haven't done before. Uh, something that I think both of us have always wanted to do and we're having trouble figuring out uh, the right the right series to do it. And that is uh, we're going to do the kind of Burton Batman series, uh, even though Burton was was only the producer on the third and was not involved in any capacity on the fourth. We are going to do a 1989 Batman. Batman Returns, Batman Forever, and then Batman and Robin. And uh, the first two are like, much like Ghostbusters 2, uh, childhood favorites that I uh, still love even more so as adults. And then the second two, we're really trying to talk about these now that the baggage of them uh, holding up the Batman franchise is out, is gone, because we do have the Nolan movies. How do we feel about them now, because I mean, I loved. I thought Batman Forever was the best one as a kid, and then just kind of stopped watching it after it seemed a little cheesy. But I remember at some point in my life being even a little angry at Batman Forever and Batman and Robin because we weren't getting any more Batman movies because of them, and I loved Batman. So it'll be it'll be fun to re- revisit those, and we'll talk a little more about guests later. Uh, one thing before I forget, though, Peter. Uh, what's very funny about Ghostbusters 2, did you know it set the three-day box office uh, record for highest grossing uh, weekend three-day box office of any movie ever? I did not. Did you know it was beaten one week later by another movie? Was it Batman 1989? <laughs> That's right. See, I didn't set it up well because I forgot about it. But it is very funny that we are go- we're going to go just like Batman – uh, just like Ghostbusters 2 did, one weekend right into uh, Batman 89, which came out the next weekend and broke its box office record. So it is weird that we're doing – it's weird to me to think that these movies came out a week apart. And the episodes on them, now we're doing later on complete accident, are coming out a week apart. Also, Batman 1989 feels extremely 80s to me, especially the Prince stuff. 
Oh, it's so good. I just rewatched it. Oh, I love it. Yeah. I hope you like the print stuff cuz I'm be I'm be I'm gonna sprinkling some sugar on. Trust. No, I'm a, I'm a pretty big fan of the movie. Don't get me oh. wrong. Um but it feels Ooh. like it feels like it's from 5 years earlier than no, Yeah, it's not uh, it's unlike this. Too. Yeah, no, the Run DMC and Bobby Brown stuff held up way better. <laughs> Bobby Brown still churning out hit after hit. Um so yeah, so stay tuned next month. Uh we're very excited to to give that a whirl and there are at least two movies I love and we'll see how the other two go. That is a great way to set this up. But our perspectives <laughs> on the Batman stuff is going to be a little bit different this time because we're going to have some fun guests that we will talk about later in April. I bid you adieu. I what the fuck is that? Who ends with, I bid you adieu. Peter, hold on. Let's try something a little better. Yeah, let's do it. Ghostbusters. <laughs> um, Something strange going on. Something. Something's wrong. wrong. The, the podcast is ending. <laughs> folks thanks for listening to we love to watch thank you so much for listening to our show and we've got just a few quick announcements for you there ain't nothing in the rule book that says that we can't do some of our own plugs baby if you'd like to talk to us uh tell us we're stupid tell us we're beautiful the quickest way to get to us is our facebook group facebook.com slash we love to watch or our website, WLTWpodcast.com. Leave us a comment. Tell us we're doing a good job. Only tell us we're doing a good job. We're so sensitive. We're sensitive boys. We're soft boys. And uh, if you'd like to help other people, if you enjoy our show and want other people to be able to listen to this fine, fine program that we produce at no cost, we don't get any money for this. You guys have yet to pay us anything. We live and we breathe off of good reviews from iTunes. So if you would please go to iTunes, review our show, give us a positive rating. We would love to get more and more people involved in this show and this community. I know you hear it all the time, but it really does help. And we're also available if you don't use iTunes. We're also available on Google Music, Stitcher, Tune in. We're currently on SoundCloud. We'll take that out if SoundCloud goes away. <laughs> That's it. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned, guys, on our Facebook page, especially. We're going to have a lot more polls, a lot more prizes, and a lot more uh, interaction with you guys. So keep it tuned in. Uh, let us know what you guys are thinking. And again, above all else, thanks for listening to We Love to Watch.